Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 133 with Nick Bucola or Bucola, you know, talking about the different ways to pronounce. It's a pleasure to have him. He's a fellow Bronco, fellow Santa Clara Bronco. And here's a little bit about him. He's a writer, lecturer, and teacher who specializes in the area of American political thought. He is the author of our, our main topic for today, The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr. and the Debate Over Race in America. And as I said, a fellow Santa Clara University alum. Welcome. How are you today? I'm great, Pete. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Oh, man, it's great to talk to you. And we were talking about the, uh, you know, the whiteboard in the back is pretty awesome. <laughs> Look at that beautiful mind Tevis stuff going on, right? Thank you. Absolutely. How about them apples, right? That's right. Yeah. Even if I'm not working, it looks like I'm working. Exactly. Awesome. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. It's an honor to have you on. Um, you know, the, the bio is fairly short, but we'll fill in some of those gaps. I love to know, um, you know, growing up, you talked about growing up in, in SoCal. You know, was it a print rich environment? Were you like always reading above your grade level? Were you the kid getting the stamps from the library every summer? You know, what was your relationship with, uh, with words and with language? Yeah, that's a, thanks for that question, Pete. I, um, I've been thinking a lot about this over the last couple of years. Uh, I was, I was, you know, not necessarily that bookish as a kid. I mean, I, I, I sort of loved, uh, I did love stories. Um, and I loved, like, I was really into like, you know, action figures. My brother was into robots and things like that. And I really liked like humans. I like to create stories with, with humans. So there's something there in my, and I was definitely surrounded by books. I and mean, I, I look back now and I, I've been thanking my mom a lot because my mom is, is, you know, she's definitely quite literary. And I, I think yeah. she, she really wanted uh, my brother and I to be, and she would remind us occasionally of like, you know, hey, this summer you should, you know, try to set a goal for the number of books you read and that sort of thing. Um, and I, I often did not live up to those expectations, but I think there was a kind of, you know, way in which she just surrounded us by books. We were, we were in our own way, you know, kind of engaged with, you know, with the word, even if it wasn't through uh, looking at a book every day. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I look back on it now and I sort of thank my mom a lot for, for, you know, sort of teaching me the value of language and just surrounding me with books that I could pick up and thumb through uh, when, when the spirit moved me. That's great. When the spirit moved you, what, 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 you know, when did the spirits move you? What kind of uh, genres or authors or books were you into? Uh, I, you know, I was really into, I was interested in history from a really young age. So that, that seems to be something that stuck. Um, and I, I don't know exactly why, except that I, you know, I, I was really fascinated by, the ways that, you know, there was sort of so many amazing stories and, and human beings to read about. Um, and I also just liked, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, Shel Silverstein and, yeah. and, um, and a lot of the, you know, Wizard of Oz. I, I've actually just had the experience in these last few weeks of, of uh, being at home back where I grew up and, and having my kids who are eight and six there. And, and wow. like a lot of my old books from when I was a kid are still there. And so I've been reading them, the, you know, The Wizard of Oz, and that was a story that I loved as, as a kid. And so I think that there's some, you know, I look back now, and uh, I remember when I was in graduate school, and one of my mentors gave a lecture about all the political themes in Wizard of Oz. And I thought, oh my gosh, all those years ago, when I was five years old, I must have been an, a burgeoning, you know, political scientist, uh, and I, I didn't even know it. So yeah, I, I think I was really attracted to, to history and to, um, you know, just, just stories that sort of invited, invited you know, us to think about who we are and, and who we might yet become. Hmm. I, at times I'll teach in my English classes, you know, high school English, I'll teach uh, green eggs and ham as allegory mm -hmm. and shoot, maybe wizard of Oz. Huh? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Seuss is also a political theorist. No doubt about it. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing those. Um, so, you know, as you got into high school and college, um, you know, what were you reading there? I mean, were there, you know, teachers that really just, you know, turned you on to like, 
this this one writer or this one genre or were there you know things that you found on your own through school a lot of my my guests i found you know have have di- have dove in dove in dived um have dove into uh you know a lot of things on their own outside of the school curriculum so what was really thrilling you as you got into high school and college yeah i mean there are a couple of moments that, that jump out uh for me i, I mean i think well, I would say just sort of like as I was going toward the end of elementary school, uh, I had a wonderful um, teacher for both fifth and sixth grade, Mrs. Kraut. And I remember that we would have these these sort of times and I think after lunch where, I mean, although we could read by that point, she would read to us. And it was kind of this moment where I just I just remember these really powerful moments of her reading to us um, and and just really feeling how deeply connected she was to whatever book she decided to read that day. Um, and so that kind of that sort of like weight of like what a book can mean to someone, I think really, you know, sunk in and just sort of it's an indelible memory for for me. And then in junior high, I, I had um, a couple teachers. Miss uh, Crawford was one who's my kind of my civics teacher who was very politically engaged, you know, kind of um, politically pugnacious, you know, would, mm-hmm. would sort of like like to push our buttons a little bit to get us going to think about politics, even as, you know, as seventh and eighth graders. Um, and then I also remember kind of another indelible memory is, is coming in one day, and this is, again, due to my mom's influence, um, and I wanted to do a, a book report. We had a book report that was sort of we got to choose our own book, and I didn't want to choose anything on the teacher's list, and I brought in Catcher in the Rye, and I was in mm. seventh grade. And I remember the teacher, um, who, who was very diplomatic about it, Miss Ms. Severn was her name, she, she said, you know, is this, I want to make sure this is okay with your parents, because this does deal with some themes that might be, uh, you know, mm. might be sort of outside of your, um, you know, your, sort of the right, the right age range. And, um, and my mom said, oh, yeah, you know, that's fine. Let's, I'm glad he wants to read a book. <laughs> I'm glad he chose it. So, yeah, I mean, those are, those are some things that, that sort of jump out to me. But, yeah, definitely in those years, though, I mean, elementary school, uh, you know, middle school, and then into high school. High school, I was just really, um, you know, history was my thing. I mean, insofar, I was kind of an, always an uneven student. I tended to do really well on things I loved and not well and things I didn't. Um, and so uh, I, I had a, you know, some great history teachers, Mr. McDermott, Mr. Ballard, um, uh, Ms. LaSalle, um, who, who really had a, a passion for history um, and, uh, and, and literature as well. I mean, literature a little bit less so, but, but history was always, was always kind of my thing. Hmm. When did you realize, I mean, was there one eureka moment or, or moments or was it more of a gradual thing where it's like, I can, I can write, I want to write, you know, people, people get a rise or enjoyment out of what I write. Was there, was there a moment or moments like that? Yeah, there were, there were a couple that, that pop into mind. Um, you know, I, I actually remember, uh, I mentioned I'm name dropping all these teachers. Hopefully they'll, they'll listen. Uh, yes, Miss Welch, uh, Mrs. Welch was another teacher. I had third grade, and I, I just I remember that was a moment in third grade when um, there was there was sort of like this moment of authorship that sort of emerged. I mean, probably that had happened in second grade, but there was this moment in third grade when at Mrs. Welch, you know, had had us writing our own stories, and I. I just remember, uh, you know, writing a story about, you know, I remember a hot air balloon was central to the plot um, and and just being so excited about like sort of creating my own. It's something I'd already been doing with my, you know, with my toys over the years is creating uh, stories as so many kids do. And but actually being able to write it down and and, and do that is was a a powerful moment for me. And um, yeah, and then I think it just kind of developed from there. I mean, opportunities that I got to to write, you know, like any other kid, there were a lot of I didn't, you know, didn't you know, often want to just go play. I didn't want to go, didn't want to sit down and write, but, um, but there was a kind of way in which I, I can sort of remember moments that that was something that appealed to me as, as a powerful way to communicate. Wow. Very cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to all those teachers who helped shape you and shaped us, man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I'll mention, Pete, is I, one thing that was really cool I got to do uh, was when I got my PhD in 2007, we invited a couple of my, my most influential, you know, elementary school uh, teachers, and they got to come, um, and I should, I should make sure, it's, it's a good reminder for me to make sure that uh, I send copies of, uh, of my books to, to some of those teachers. Yeah, so important. that's as good as it gets right there, that's cool. How about then some of your early writing? I mean, did you, did you get right into you know, publishing, did you kind of do the whole, like, you know, I'm going to go, I don't know, live on a boat for two years and get life experience and, 
you know, on the road, Jack Kerouac, or how did you um, get into writing? Was it more like life experience or was it something that you, you did pretty much right off the bat? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, nothing that rom romantic or dramatic for me. I mean, I I um I was sort of you know I, I tell people uh, all the time that I, I I'm definitely a late bloomer. Um, I I like I said before, I had moment, I had things that I was you know relatively good at you know in school growing up, but I was always this uneven student. And when I got to um, when I got to college at Santa Clara. I, you know, that, that unevenness continued. I had some classes that I just loved and, you know, I had, you know, sort of ethics class, my first, I think my first quarter that I, that I loved and did really well in. And then I had classes, you know, like biology that I really struggled in. Um, and, uh, and so for me, uh, writing was something that sometimes, you know, it, it came to me and I enjoyed doing it. And it was something I uh, was excited about. And I, and I think back at a couple of those papers I wrote, even as a freshman, where I was like, you know, this is fun. I want, I like doing this. Mm. Um, and then, you know, but then also really struggling in other, in other areas. And so um, by the time I got to be a senior at Santa Clara, I was lucky that I went to a small enough place mm -hmm. that I was noticed and people knew who I was, you know, because my advisor, uh, Terry Peretti uh, in political science, you know, she said to me, you know, I've had, I had you as a freshman, I'd use a sophomore and I have you as a senior. And I, I it seems like you're kind of getting the hang of this stuff. And, um, yeah. and I, I, I said, Oh yeah, thanks for noticing. I guess I am, you know? And, and, um, and she said, you know, have you thought about going to graduate school? And I, uh, I had not really, I was, I was, you know, kind of didn't really know what I was going to, I was just kind of muddling through and, and uh, not really thinking too far ahead. And so she really, that sparked, you know, an idea in my mind that previously was not there, which is that yes, being a professor seemed like an extraordinarily cool thing to do, mm. but it didn't seem within, within reach, it just seemed like this impossible goal. But, but her suggestion and her encouragement and her support um, really helped me down the path that, that I ended up on. And, and so, yeah, that, that was kind of crucial. And then, and then in terms of writing from there, it was, you know, once I got into graduate school, um, at the University of Southern California, um, you know, I would say my most of my writing development at that point was by necessity, you know, just sort of ha having to write for graduate school and then taking some of the things that I wrote that I thought were good enough in, in graduate school and trying to get them out in the world to get published in journals and all that, you know, to the end of trying to get a university job. And, um, and uh, yeah, and then it just kind of went from there and, and did a lot of writing that was you know, I would say most, a lot of painful writing, you know, academic writing can be very painful. Um, but, uh, but now I've kind of found a groove, you know, with this last book, that's, that's much more like, I, I really love the kind of writing I'm doing now. And I, mm -hmm. I can't imagine my life without it. And it's kind of the sentence could sort of become a central part of, of who I am. Oh man. Well, if you can't see me on the video right now, am I doing the, the, the USC fight uh, signal correctly? I think so. Yeah, okay. I think so. Okay. Yeah, as a graduate student, you know, it's one of those things. Oh, yeah. You, right. As a graduate student, you don't get to go to, you know, you can go to a football game, but you usually got, you know, a thousand pages to read that weekend. So exactly. Yeah. yeah Santa Clara has been great to our family. My like, three generations, really. Both of my brothers went there as well as me. Awesome stuff. Um, I was so struck and I, I went I went to a Jesuit high school. I was so struck by the Jesuits. Right. If, if people listening don't know. I mean, these they're they're extremely worldly like i guess in the, in the best sense of the word they're they're learned right i mean you know mm -hmm. i think of professors they you know they were in poland and brazil and they speak polish and they speak spanish and they speak right uh you know and those kind of things i wonder um if you had a chance to be taught by a lot of the jesuits just sense of inquiry that comes with with them yeah absolutely and i i should say i mean just this this is this is great i love this trip down memory lane because i'm thinking about you know just as i said with with mrs crowd in fifth grade you know having these moments when she's reading these stories and just kind of feeling that the ways in which it's you know the the words mean so much to her i i had moments like that at santa clara from beginning to end uh and one one that jumps you know sort of moments that jump out to me um uh a jesuit named father mark revisa was was oh, there at my what a, what a guy are you, you okay so you know, oh, yeah. yeah so he was there my orientation my orientation or um one of those things where my parents were there so we're sitting there and they have father he's up there and i remember he played you know he played the that sort of famous um 
uh, scene from American Beauty where the plastic bag is, you know, floating around uh, in the wind. Um, and then he just, you know, did this incredible philosophical discourse about it. And um, and I remember, you know, it was just sort of one of those moments like, oh my God, like, what is, this is amazing. Yeah. This guy is just uh, on this other level. And then I had the chance to take um, his philosophical topics in literature and film class when I was a senior. So it came full circle. And just, it was just one of those like, you know, intellectual experiences that I didn't often had, you know, it was over my head. I had a lot of experiences like that Santa Clara where I, I knew I was in the presence of somebody who was thinking at a level that I could only dream about, but I, but I, but I knew, but it was, there was still things. I, I mean, still, I come back to that experience and I, I, you know, I quote, just last week I was quoting something I read from that class that, that uh, just sort of stuck with me all those years, you know, sort of talking to somebody about, yeah, just about life and the meaning of life. And I remember Father Revisa had this read this one this one line, um, and he emphasized it, uh, which went something like, "Beware of the atrophy of wonder." You know, sort of like this oh. idea. And I just sort of like, yeah, that that's one of those things you hear it and go, "Oh yeah, that's <laughs> that's important." <laughs> that important. I, I must have missed you by a year or two. I think I think it was my senior year. Um, I took he and uh, and Paul Fitzgerald, Father Paul Fitzgerald did a class um or it was oh man it was uh i would know the name if i heard it but a polish filmmaker and it was basically like he did like oh man the decalogue yeah was it right? is it christoph koslowski is that sound that right sounds here? correct yes um yeah the decalogue oh man you know and i just, yeah, that just yeah, you just brought back some memories yeah the decalogue <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man yeah I, I i still there's some of those movies that we watched with him that uh man that was just one of those experiences i still have in my i think it's in my home my my work office not mm -hmm. my home office but i still have my all my notes from that class my syllabus all that stuff i just can't yes. let it go you know yes i i bet i bet your students you get the same type of thing in the class in your classes i mean there's nothing there's nothing like the the great readings, the great movies, and then those discussions after them, right? I mean, it's just as good as it gets in the classroom, really. Yeah, absolutely. That's I mean, that's definitely um, you know, it's it's one of those things where I often pinch myself uh, and just say, I get to do this, you know, for a living. Somebody pays me to hang out with with young folks and talk about interesting movies and books, and um, yeah, it it really is. You know, it's one of those things that I. Um, you know, all of us in our day-to-day -day lives, we get stressed and we got a thousand things going on and um, so many demands on our time. But uh, those moments in a classroom that I'm sure you experience all the time, Pete, are just, you know, magical when you see a student kind of get something and not get something for the sake of a test as much as get something for the sake of life. You know, those are the mm -hmm. moments that, that, that sort of uh, make it all worth it. So I, um, yeah, absolutely. A lot of those great moments in Santa Clara and I try to, try to pay it forward to my students uh, yeah. today when I can. Yeah, I mean, I believe that I, I first found out about your book through Santa Clara Magazine. So, so, so cool to have the, uh, the homegrown talent. Now, a couple years ago, I feel like the whole world, this is extreme sarcasm coming right here. The whole world found out about Frederick Douglass, according to Donald Trump. They're like, oh, he, you know, he's, we're finding out about him now. And he's, you know, a lot of people are, you wrote, a, you wrote the book um, in, about his essential writings in 2012. Um, obviously a titan, a legendary figure. What led you to in his direction? Yeah, I mean, Douglas is somebody who, um, you know, was on my radar, certainly as, as someone I wanted to know more about. I, you know, encountered Douglas like many folks in, in high school, just in a, in a sort of American history class, you know, comes up occasionally in American, you know, literature classes uh, through his autobiographies. And um, just, you know, like everybody else, just kind of getting the, the basics of his life story. I, sorry, to uh, cut you, sorry to cut you off real quick. We're on we're on June 30th, right? I mean, it's his famous, what, July 4th speech? Right? Yeah. Coming up in a couple of days, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah, Douglas uh, is somebody who just has this amazing life, you know, born into slavery and escapes from slavery and then spends, you know, six decades in public life as a, a leading reformer, one of the most traveled Americans, one of the most photographed Americans, mm -hmm. uh, becomes this kind of icon of, of 19th century American political thought and culture. And, um, and I, yes, yeah, so I was interested in Douglas and I, I, in college, I didn't have occasion to read Douglas, but for whatever reason, um, I was more likely in those days to just pick up a book. And I, mm -hmm. I picked up, um, you know, one of his autobiographies and 
I was just sort of like, wow, you know, there's a lot here. And then a little bit later in college, I, I had occasion to just start reading, you know, more of his speeches and his essays. And I, I realized when I encountered the speeches and essays in a serious way, um, just how capacious his mind was. I mean, he was somebody who, you know, he said late in life that I, I worry I will only be remembered as a slave who became an abolitionist. And that, that would have been enough, you know, for most lives, but he lived many lives in one. And right. as, as others have said, I mean, he just was so, he was interested in, you know, human rights in the most universal sense an advocate for women's rights, the rights of immigrants, um, religious minorities. So I, I knew as an undergraduate, like I wanted, you know, he was somebody really interesting to me. And so when I got to graduate school, um, I it took every chance I got to just keep reading him. And then when it came time to find a dissertation topic, I, I really wanted to write about the abolitionists. And then eventually it worked my way to just writing about Douglas. So my first book, uh, was based on my dissertation, uh, The Political Thought of Frederick Douglass. And then, as you mentioned, I, I edited a collection of his writings and speeches um, called The Essential Douglass. So yeah, he's still part of, I mean, just this last month, Pete, I've been in like about five different places talking about Frederick Douglass. So I, mm. I mean, still, he's still a central part of my life, um, including, you know, I had an opportunity to uh, talk Douglass with a group of high school and middle school teachers in, in Wichita, Kansas about a month ago. Oh, wow. really cool. Cool. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I just think Douglas is one of those figures that is, um, I never tire of thinking about him, thinking with him. He's just a really compelling, important figure in American history. And yeah, he, although he, yeah, he's, uh, is, is, you know, I won't say he's still doing amazing things. Uh, he did many amazing things and he's definitely worth, worth studying and thinking about for sure. I know he wasn't the, the one to coin the phrase, but, you know, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talks about, like, on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we go forward in the years, of course, you know, James Baldwin. And, you know, that's the fire upon us right here. Again, with the full title being the fire is upon us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr. and the debate over race in America. Um, what were some of the seeds for the book? Now, I'm sorry, this was is this 2017 or 2019? Uh, the book came out in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the seeds for the for that book? You know, um, th that book uh, happened, you know, in many ways by by accident. I mean, I I, I have I'm definitely one of these people that um, you know I wish I could say I had these like grand plans and I and I executed them, but I'm more like you know like most folks, it's kind of muddle through and get lucky. And so um, I was uh, I sort of like had read a little bit of Baldwin as an, as an undergraduate at Santa Clara. I think I. I, I recall reading um, one of Baldwin's short stories in like one of my like sort of core composition classes. Mm. And, it, you know, he'd come up, you know, over the years, of course, but I hadn't really studied him in a serious way. And I, I now sort of look back with like, you know, regret and shame at, at how long I, I lived without a serious engagement with, with James Baldwin. But I, I was invited um, uh, to contribute an essay, to write an essay about Baldwin. And, and it was, that happened just kind of by accident. Uh, a scholar by the name of Susan McWilliams Barnt um, invited me to write an essay about him. I confessed to her that, you know, she wasn't inviting the right person. I didn't know much about Baldwin, but she's, she gave me a long timeline where basically I had a year to read Baldwin and then a year to write about him. So I was like, I think I can do that. Um, and, and, and thank goodness I did. I mean, it was just one of those things where once I got going in a real way, I was completely transfixed. I mean, I, I can't, uh, you know, it's just, I, I'm sort of always thinking ever since, you know, I really got to know Baldwin, I've been thinking about him uh, a lot, you know, every day for sure. And, and many times a day. And so Baldwin, um, you know, once I was down that going down that road of writing about him, I, I came across the BBC recording of this debate he had in 1965 with William F. Buckley Jr. Um, and so, you know, for folks who are uh, don't know um, that much about one or, or, or both the figures, um, Baldwin at the time, Baldwin, Baldwin debates Buckley. Baldwin is, you know, called uh, Malcolm X called him the poet of the civil rights revolution. So in 1965, when they had this debate, Baldwin's really the leading literary figure associated with um, the civil rights movement. He was a civil rights activist in his own right, but he was primarily an artist. He was a he was mm -hmm. a an essayist um, and a uh, a speaker and and a playwright and all these other things. I um, mean, Buckley was in his own way a, a kind of poet of of his revolution, the conservative revolution or counter revolution. Um, Buckley had been you know devoted. Uh, his professional life to really, you know, being a kind of founding father of, of the American conservative movement. Um, and so, yeah, when I came across this debate that we'll, we'll talk more about, it, this video recording of the debate, uh, February 1965, 
um, I was like completely transfixed. It was just this amazing dramatic moment of these two human beings who had such radically different life experiences and who had, you know, sort of by the time they met, they're both about 40 years old when they meet, um, they'd become kind of embodiments of movements. And they're on this international stage at the world's oldest debating society, um, debating race in the American dream. And so the, the kind of drama of that moment just pulled me in and has had a hold of me ever since. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was the kind of start of like, I wrote an essay about it. And I, as I wrote the essay, I kept thinking, there's a book in here and it had been almost 50 years since the debate. I kept thinking to myself, how has nobody written this book? Hmm. And so then it, all of a sudden that question became a statement, like I'm going to be the one who writes this yeah. book. And then I kind of wrote the book in a mad fury in the fear that somebody else would, would write it before I did. Um, so that was the kind of, those are kind of the seeds of the book. Hmm. Yeah. Um, we watch in my English class, we do the American, you know, American dream unit. And I mean, it's, I don't know, it's probably like a 12 minute clip, but it's, um, James Baldwin on Dick, the Dick Cavett show with is it Paul Weiss. Yeah, Paul Weiss. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, my students, I mean, it was like cartoonish, like, I mean, jaws on the floor. I mean, Baldwin as a speaker. I mean, just wow. Just impressive yeah. to say the least. That's an understatement. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's true. And I, I mean, I, I have the same experience, Pete, with my students. They, you know, they'll, they'll sort of see him, they'll, they, even if they, they, they read him for class and they, if those who don't go down the YouTube rabbit hole and watch mm. Him that come into class and I'll play a clip and they and they're sort of yeah they're sort of mesmerized um, by by Baldwin and I'm not surprised I mean he had, he had a a truly unique and remarkable way of being in the world you know and so I think some of it goes back to he was a you know young minister child preacher and he kind of he says I he remained you know I left the church at 17 but remained forever a preacher so he had this kind of way of this way with words, uh, this way of delivering yeah. his message that was kind of like an Old Testament prophet, you know, as he mm. says, uh, as he said at the night, the night he debated Buckley, he, he kind of remained in that, that kind of prophetic role throughout his life. Yes, definitely. I, I might have missed it, but, uh, you know, there's in the epilogue, it's like, whoa, there's an I in there. There's a first person singular I, you know, you did an incredible job with, I mean, obviously as a historian, like the objectivity, mm-hmm. um, I mean, what is subjectivity? What is objectivity? You know, how do you, I mean, is it possible? You know, that's a whole philosophical debate, but it's like, you know, it seems really hard to empathize or sympathize with Buckley, mm-hmm. but obviously much more so with James Baldwin, but, you know, at the same time, you don't give either of them short shrift. I mean, it's almost a one chapter, one chapter, you know, or mm-hmm. half a chapter, you know, it's very mm-hmm. equal in that way, equal time, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, if someone were to, to read, someone reads a book and say, you know, he, if, if Nick had to pick and I'm maybe putting words in your mouth, you're going to, you know, your team Baldwin, but how did you keep that subject, excuse me, that objectivity where, you know, I mean, Buckley, you know, formal, elegant, you know, great speaker, but very antiquated, antiquated is not even the word, just very racist, mm-hmm. el- racial, racially elitist as you write, um, you know, mm-hmm. thoughts or words that he put out there how do you you keep the objectivity without you know without doing like a both sides and like oh you know defending right right yeah that's a great that's a great uh question pete and i think that one of the things i really set out to do is i think there's a for me um you know there's a difference between you know kind of a kind of objectivity and, and neutrality you know i think that um i really wanted you know i thought it was really important once the the kind of structure of the book kind of came became clear in my mind of of really you know I started out with the idea of writing maybe a shorter book about the debate the night of this dramatic debate and and how it happened and and sort of like really you know diving into the debate in, in a lot of detail I ended up doing that but, but but I realized pretty quickly once I started doing the research there was a much bigger story to tell which was about these two individuals they were born you know 15 months apart they live these uh, very different lives and so really the, the 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 heart of the book for me is is the lead up you know to the debate right mm-hmm. how did they become who they became and led to this this clash that night that's that, that's sort of the, the you know for me the the heart and soul of the book and so as i told that story of like i really wanted to try myself as as a writer to understand these people right who who were they how did they became how do they why did they believe what they believed um and i and i really wanted as you said uh, to do justice to their 
understand their self-understanding, right? Like who did they think they were? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and how can I communicate that to the reader? And so with Buckley, especially, as you said, I mean, like it wasn't, I didn't have doubts going in really about who I thought was right, you know, but I had, but I, what I had to do is really try to get inside of Buckley's head to try to understand what he was thinking and try to give the reader a sense of how he understood what he was doing. Now, I think part of that to me was my pride in terms of the objectivity and my obligations as a scholar, as a kind of historian, um, that to me was, was really, really important. I wanted to be fair to him. I wanted to allow him to speak for himself. Mm -hmm. um, but with at the same time, I mean, essentially what I, what I say, you know, if, if somebody criticizes me for being biased in the book, I say, well, I'm, my, I, I will go that far in terms of my obligations to objectivity, but I also say that I do, as a scholar, also have room and, and uh, feel a responsibility to make judgments, you know, and so I try, you know, in the book to lay out exactly how I understand what Buckley's doing, the, the context in which he's doing it, um, but also kind of Baldwin provides a lens, you know, through which to view Buckley. I, I use Baldwin's lens to view Buckley. I use Buckley's lens to view Baldwin. Mm -hmm. um, and then in that space between them, I think that's where there's a, the story of Baldwin v. Buckley is important in its own right. But that story is, is of course, just a symbol of so much more about the country, right? And so I want to give the reader the opportunity to, to really think in slow motion with these two people and get to know them. Um, but that I hope that causes people to reflect then on, on you know, I hope calls not just people, but all of us, me included, mm -hmm. uh, calls all, causes all of us to reflect on ourselves and, and what, how, we, how we sort of situate ourselves um, in this drama that is American history. And so um, that's kind of what I take to be my, my project in the book. I think for the most part, people even who don't agree with my political conclusions about things think I was pretty, uh, I was pretty fair um, to Buckley. Uh, but, you know, I, I know that if I didn't if I didn't get it, have any critics, um, then I wouldn't be I was I'd probably be doing something wrong. And so um, I'm certainly welcome the criticism. And I indeed, I, I sort of one of the things I, I lament is that the book, you know, I, I would like to have more engagements with people who disagree with me. Um, they, but I haven't had as many of those as, as I'd hope, not because I'm, I've declined the invitations. I, I've sort of yes. waited for them. So if you're out there uh, and you want to talk right. to me, you know, I, I'm here. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. How about 2025? We make it the 60 year anniversary and you debate, you know, like a William Buckley, you know, yeah, like, right. a, like a, like a disciple of his. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm up for it. the word it was is it like a baldwinization or jamesization which is where he goes from something very personal and then he makes it more general what was the term yeah that that's a term um from uh sharifa rhodes pitts a contemporary writer um uses that the idea of the jimmy uh she calls jimmy, it so like, jimmy yes thank you. like a signature you know like if, if like like basketball players have their signature move um uh -huh. uh, sharifa rhodes pitts says that you know baldwin's signature move as a writer is this ability to go from the very particular details of something in his life mm -hmm. or a particular thing he's looking at in the world as a, as a journalist or, or whatever to these big universal questions. And yeah, I mean, you know, that's something that, you know, is not a literary technique that's unique to Baldwin, but he did it so beautifully and, and so smoothly, powerfully. Yeah. Smoothly. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things when, I, you know, and I think I learned a lot about, about writing, you know, from, but just spending all this time with Baldwin because he, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, is just one of the most um, brilliant writers who's ever, you know, walked the earth. And so I, I learned a lot from him. Definitely. Darn it. Now you got me thinking of, I don't know if you know that Seinfeld reference, Jimmy. Jimmy was the guy who spoke in third person about himself. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I need to catch up on my Seinfeld. <laughs> so you, you kind of, with the book, you kind of do the opposite, like, like you were talking about where, you know, the context, the background of their lives is, is hugely important. And I want to say maybe like five or six of the eight chapters are, are lead up to 1965, Cambridge, England, mm -hmm. um, you know, where the context and the bigger view are necessary to, to know why, you know, the, the debate was so dynamic. And then in the epilogue, which is obviously the last chapter, you kind of, I guess it's still, I guess it's still, still broad. So, um, you know, very, uh, from a craft point of view, very successfully done on your part. Um, the book starts with the prologue, which is February 1965, like you talked about. There's a huge buzz in Cambridge. 
for this intellectual standoff. It's not a soccer match. It's not a boxing mm -hmm. match. It's, you know, a battle of wits. Mm -hmm. um, you set up Buckley and Baldwin as opposites. I mean, physically, all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And you, you write about how Baldwin really did admire his, his mother as like, this comes up later just where, you know, Buckley uh, accuses him, accuses Baldwin of being anti-Christ, not even anti-Christian, but like anti-Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Baldwin says, no, like I have great love, let's say for my mom and her true religiosity in the, in the best sense, you know, says, you know, Jesus, the same thing. He has so many great quotes about Christianity, not living up to its, its promises. Right. Right. While Buckley, so, so the, the mother connection, right. He really respected yeah. his mother's true, you know, faith, which he, you know, he lost if he ever had it, but he respected mm -hmm. it. While Buckley is set up as, you know, really, loving his mother really directly or consciously or subconsciously really under, um taking in her views of racial like stratification like mm -hmm. as in this is just the way it is very very maternal mm -hmm. right very like oh you know we oh but they're so nice they're so sweet we're here to take mm -hmm. care of them kind of thing right yeah no I, I think that that's that's exactly right i mean i think that uh, yeah a lot a lot yeah, a lot of things going on there. But I mean, I think, I think one thing I'll just say before I get to the substance of the debate is the point about craft that you made that I, I know you'll, you know, you have uh, students, you know, and, and people who are interested in writing, listen to your podcast. Um, and I, I am definitely one of those people who's very um, shy about, about giving writing advice, uh, you know, for over the years until, until I wrote this book where I, where I feel like I learned a lot about writing. And so one thing I'll say about, um, you know, the, the nice things you said about, about the style of the book is that, uh, I mean, one commandment that I now live by is it, that I encourage other writers to at least consider is that allow your materials to tell you how the story ought to be told, you know, and so um, I had to, you know, I'm trained as a political theorist and, and so I had to, and that's, there's value in, I love political theory, I'm still a political theorist, I'll be a political theorist, you know, um, as long as I'm alive, but there's, there's ways in which I had to unlearn all the ways I learned to write as a political theorist to write oh, okay. this book the way I did. And so again, and then in the materials, again, it wasn't like I had this, you know, heavenly revelation one day where I said, oh, this is how this book needs to be structured and how the story needs to be told The, you know, the materials were telling me like, this is what, like, as you said, I start the book in this, you know, very cinematic way because it's a very cinematic moment. And that's the excitement that drew me in. And I want, I wanted the reader. And then from there, the kind of weave of these two lives, you know, set against the backdrop of the rise of these two movements. Mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, that was the, the research was telling me like, hey, that's what this is. Like you're talking about these two people, but it's in this larger context. And and it really only like the the kind of ratcheting up of the you know pressure, right? Is you you start out the reader in that space and they they sense the drama of it. And then they gotta wait, as you said, 250 pages before they're back in that space. So mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and, and so uh, that's kind of my 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 little um soapbox moment on craft uh but yeah but yeah then the substance as you say i mean once they once you once the reader does get back to that debate um they know right they have a good sense they're you know they have a good sense of what to expect in terms of these mm -hmm. two people um but but then they're able to you know kind of engage the debate um in a different way because they kind of know the backstory of these two people. I mean, I, I've had people ask me, you know, should I watch the debate before mm. or after I read the book? And I, I'm always say like both and like, just keep, you know, you watch the debate, watch it again, watch it again, watch it again, um, yeah. listen to it, whatever. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much going on in the debate itself. The, the debate, you know, the speeches are remarkable in their own way. Um, but I think that, you know, thinking about them in this larger context, again, as you said, just thinking about them in this historical moment when we're at the high tide of the civil rights movement across the ocean, the Selma campaign's going on. Um, there's so much about that moment, you know, that is, uh, is just so weighted with the, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the tragedies and the triumphs of American history. And so to have this moment with these two intellectuals as you say, kind of battling um, in a, a kind of, you know, intellectual prize fight that has such high stakes, right? I don't want to trivialize yeah. it as a sporting event, right? It's not a sporting event. It's about, it's about lives, real lives. And so, so yeah, it's, it's just an amazing uh, story and it's an amazing moment. You know, the, the fact that it happened, right, gave me, you know, gave, gave all of us reason to think about these two people together when otherwise, it wouldn't, they're, they're not a natural pairing in so many different ways. So um, I'm grateful to the Cambridge students who hosted the debate, who, who gave us occasion uh, all these years later to keep thinking about it. Mm. And so, you know, you, um, 
the fathers of the two, you know, Buckley's was arch conservative. He had really an individualist strain, um, you know, very much about what small, I don't know, what small government and individualists are those synonymous? Not necessarily, maybe, but. Yeah, yeah, I think they're, for them, there were, yeah, small government, at least in certain areas, is definitely sure. part of it. Yes. For sure. And, you know, Baldwin's stepfather, which is mainly who he grew up with, was was humiliating. He was humiliating to to many people, including his stepson. He was also humiliated. I mean, you 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 paint the picture. I mean, the context where he he was a a black man in you know nineteen twenties nineteen thirties, and he'd lived. He'd been humiliated and abused and all kinds of things. And so you really show the the full three hundred sixty. Is a hundred eighty degree view or three hundred sixty degree view? Three hundred sixty degree view, you know, of, of his life. Right. That yes. Baldwin pitied him in some ways and also resented him in some ways. You talk, you go on to, to write about Baldwin himself as a writer. Um, so, you know, that some of his essays were his, his best, according to many people who study him. They're very realistic. Um, Buckley, I kept thinking of Stephen Miller as I read about Buckley and him, right? Like in high like college and just loving to be a dissenter mm-hmm. and just like loving to like start you know, just be malicious in those ways. I just keep, I kept thinking of Stephen Miller. I really did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to that. I mean, the, yeah, again, a lot, a lot there, but yeah, I mean, certainly the father's um, figure very prominently and, and as you described really well, Pete, a lot of the ways in which they're, they're relevant. I mean, I, I think about, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the sort of the father, the father part, part of the story lately uh, for a variety of different reasons. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really powerful thing. I mean, I think if you think about the relationship that each man had with his father, it, it sort of does tell um, you know a large part of uh, it's sort of or it's a way into a large part of the story and the dispute they have about about what it means to to love one's country, right? Is there's kind of a, a connection there that I, uh, I I'm still exploring and I'll continue to write about uh, in in the future. But yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean Baldwin was able to you know reach a point of Kind of understanding um, his father, you know, you know, he sort of has this battle with his father as he's growing up, and all these ways in which he he uh, his father gives him very good reason to uh, to loathe, you know, to loathe him, right? I mean, he sort of goes. His father is abusive in every every way possible, and um, and Baldwin, you know, will never forgive, you know, a, a lot of the things his father does, but he does come to an understanding of of why his father became who he became. And that, and that understanding allows Baldwin to see the ways in which his father, uh, the, the sort of despair of his father is, is really, uh, yes, there's an indictment of the man, but there's really an indictment of the country that produced him in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, and then on the flip side, you know, Buckley, it's, it's sort of this, you know, sort of, yeah, this kind of exact opposite. Buckley kind of worships his father and doesn't quite want to become his father, but he's devoted to the idea of, of becoming the best possible defender of his pot of his father's worldview that he can. And so all, you know, he really, you know, prides himself in, in, in using language to defend everything his father taught him was right about the right. world. Um, and so, yeah, that, that distinction, uh, that, that contrast, I think is extraordinarily powerful and definitely a theme that runs throughout the book. And, um, and yeah, as you mentioned earlier, the, you know, the, the sort of things that each of them are taught by their mothers in terms of how to be in the world also have this, this great, uh, this great impact. And so, yeah, it's, it's just a, another one of those things where, you know, initially um, I didn't quite know, you know, what the archive would, would tell me about, you know, how their family lives affected them and in, in terms of shaping uh, who they were, who they became. But yeah, it just, it really does um, set up this really powerful contrast. And, and you know, they, they don't disagree about everything. They disagree about a lot of things, but their life experiences um, certainly are, are a really important part of the story. Not the whole of it, but they're an important part of the story. Another interesting contrast is, you know, Baldwin is very cosmopolitan in all ways. I mean, I just, when I think of him, I think of him with a cigarette, you know, which is, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately is not so much of a big deal. And, you know, it's not the cosmopolitan way as much anymore, but, you know. He grew up in New York City, grew up in Harlem. He he went, he worked in Greenwich, what, Greenwich Village and he worked at the Calypso and he he met all kinds of important people, but but more so like intellectually serious people. And you know, the political mes- muscles were stretched. And you know, he lost a good friend of his uh, last name of Worth, mm-hmm. right, to suicide. And he was, you know, he was a 
you know, I think with socialist party and was, but, you know, was very idealistic and philosophical. And so he just went, he just learned, you know, in the, what's the cheesy term, you know, like the, the cauldron of life, the classroom of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Buckley was, you know, Yale and whole history of Yale, he really got interested in like the American orthodoxy. And, you know, he was skeptical. I mean, he was skeptical of Yale in many ways while he had a pretty good, you know, fairly good. I and mean, he had a good experience there in some ways, but he felt like, and again, and I, you know, it's so cheesy and hackneyed, not cheesy, but so hackneyed to come back to this, but like so many parallels to today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I think that their, yeah, their, their upbringings are... Uh, sorry, you know, just, are, sorry, just like, that might be a little yeah. generic. I just mean more specifically like how, you know, he thought like, oh, they're pushing like a liberal bias at the school. Oh, yeah. Oh, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, is it's, uh, the, the sort of part of the book you just described is these two guys are you know, kind of like coming into their own intellectually in, the, in their own ways and kind of getting into the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot about their experiences that, um, you know, pretty pretty quickly, they both are, you know, demonstrate this facility with language. They both want to use language mm-hmm. um, to understand the world, to change the world. But yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of a lot of connections to um, to today. I mean, when, when Buckley gets to Yale, as you point out, he, he, go, he arrives at Yale and essentially says his expectation is that um, the things that he had been taught growing up, the political and religious ideas he'd been taught growing up would be reinforced there. And he, he says that, you know, he found a little bit of that, but mostly professors who were um, hostile to Christianity. Yeah, just the, the, the professors and, and expectation of like teaching a Christ, like a really a Christian base to American greatness, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I always you know, point out in the book that, you know, Buckley wasn't against universities indoctrinating students. He just wanted to make yes. sure they were indoctrinated in the right, in the, with the right yeah. ideas. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Buckley is very much, he, I mean, the basic, one of the ideas that he is taught by his parents, and it's reinforced by one of his mentors at, at Yale, this guy named Wilmer Kendall, is that, you know, in order for a society to function well, um, there needs to be a kind of orthodoxy of sorts that holds it together. And so, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Buckley. You know, he, he's not a he's not a um, he's not going to defend you know outright theocracy or something. But I mean, it, it is a kind of he does have a particular worldview in which you know certainly culturally he wants um, particular ideas to be promoted and and reinforced, and he thinks that's essential. And again, this is in a Cold War context, so a lot of this has to do with um, Buckley's sense of of how to win the Cold War and how to how to defeat communism. But yeah, I mean, that's essential, you know, to his worldview. So, I mean, he, he really does have this sense of, you know, the role of a teacher. I mean, just in terms of, you know, whatever level we're teaching at, you know, he, he does think that the teacher's role is to um, not just introduce students to one particular set of ideas. He doesn't go that far, but he does say that, um, you know, he thinks that the, the role of the teacher is to um, introduce ideas, point out which ideas are right and, and deflate those which are wrong, you know, and so his sense of what's right and wrong, though, is is pretty narrow. Um, and he has a particular, you know, kind of way of, I mean, and he makes it very clear in, in, you know, his first book, God and Man at Yale, which he just writes, you know, book length indictment of of uh, of that institution um, for its failures. Um, he, you know, he, he makes it pretty clear that, you know, his sense of what is off, you know, what, it, what needs to be deflated is very broad and his sense of what needs to be defended is pretty narrow. And so um, that's a central, you know, that's kind of, that's not a, you know, a one-off for Buckley. That was essential to his yes. world. His next book is defending Joe McCarthy and, you know, the latest, you know, Red Scare at the time. So he's, he's very much committed to the idea in education and culture and politics. There needs to be an orthodoxy that's defended by the responsible leaders of the society and, and the teachers and so on. So that's essential to his world. Whereas Baldwin, as you mentioned, you know, Baldwin is at that same time, right, is on, is sort of, getting his own kind of higher education in cafes and right. in Greenwich Village in Paris, where he's really interested in arguing about ideas. He's very interested in, um, in, in challenging uh, authority. Um, and so he has this, this very strongly different point of view. I mean, one thing I just to sort of um, bring that idea to a close, I mean, one thing I love about this, it draws a really nice contrast between the two again is Baldwin in those early years is asked by one of his early um, publishers, you know, he does this like kind of author questionnaire 
um, to, where they're trying to like kind of get to know him because he's an un, unknown writer at the time. And one of the great questions that on the questionnaire that I, I now use as an icebreaker on the first day of class is the questionnaire asks, um, what sort of people annoy, what sorts of people annoy you most? Uh. <laughs> and, um, and Baldwin's answer uh, is, he says, the doctrinaire, those who are never troubled by doubt, you know, and so mm. Baldwin has this kind of way of being in the world from a very early, early age, you know, um, where he has a kind of like, he's a Socratic like character, you know, he likes mm. to ask questions, he likes to challenge people. Um, and he's not, he's certainly not somebody who wants to be you know, indoctrinated into any particular worldview. Definitely. And, you know, he's not he's not above criticizing people who you would think would be on his side, quote unquote, or he should be on their side, you know. I mean, even even Richard Wright, who was really a, a benefactor in many ways to to James Baldwin, even though you, know, you could argue maybe he didn't even need it, but critiquing some of his some of Richard Wright's work, one of the things that that you write about that that um, James Baldwin was so uh, annoyed by was just sentimentality, right? And I mean, you know, like an Uncle Tom's Cabin, which obviously has all kinds of holes and have been debated and talked about for many years, but just oversimplification. You know, obviously stereotype, but like the sentimentality um, is is an enemy to to him. The as you talk about the Cold Wars, you know, the the, the hearings with um, I was gonna say George Wallace McCarthy, excuse me, right? And Buckley is jumping on board, right? I just I feel like you know if it, if he were alive in 2022, he'd be all about CRT, down with CRT, right? Mm -hmm. Not not down with it, but you know, <laughs> down with it. And, you know, being at the meetings and, you know, all these leftist professors, so to speak. But at the same time, Buckley, as you write, was was charismatic. He he did enough to push people, but they didn't necessarily hate him. They wanted to hear more, whether it was kind of like the whole wanting to see a car wreck, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but he was, you know, he was uh, asked to do a lot of speeches and he was asked to be on TV shows. So he starts the National Review. Is that correct? That, yeah, that is correct. Yeah. 1955, first issue, November 1955. The, like you talked about earlier, the conservative, you know, this is our, our credo kind of thing, the moral center um, mm. here. While James Baldwin, around the same time, he, he has Go Tell It. Um, it's an allegory. He's working on plays. He, like you talked about, he comes to a better understanding of his stepfather. Um, but he's really talking about, you know, philosophical questions like, can we find a moral center here? Mm hmm. Um, and, you know, right around the time of Emmett Till's horrific murder is when Buckley, like we talked about, founds the National Review. Um, he doesn't want to be seen as, as a KKK, you know, Southern, you know, hillbilly. He wants to be, he, he's, you know, got the shirt and tie and he comes from, from Connecticut and, you know, kind of old, some old money on, on one side of his family. But he, I, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his, and I, there's so many different instances that you write about in the book so it's hard to nail it down mm -hmm. but i want you to, i'd like you to, if you can to talk about how he really did not consider himself to be you know them kkk but some of the things he said and wrote about were basically at the softest i guess if you will would be like okay well you know african americans are not ready yet for all these different reasons they're not ready yet to mm -hmm. um you know to to be equal but other times basically saying, you know, race science and all the, yeah. the pseudoscience is correct. The idea yeah. of uh, his like buttoned up, I'm not a KKK, but uh -huh. virulent racist views. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important, you know, the, like one of the things that is, is uh, I think it, it, where I try to, I try to, I had one reader, um, you know, who, who told me after um, when I was on, I think probably I was out on the road talking about the book before the pandemic um, who came up and she said, you know, I, I was gonna, I picked up this book. I love Baldwin. I was interested in Baldwin. And then my plan when I started the book was to skip the Buckley sections, you know? Mm. Um, and then she said, you know, but I, but I, I started reading them just to see. And then I thought, you know, I actually need to read this, even though I find much of what he's doing to be repugnant, it's important for me to try to understand it. And I, um, I think that's a really, what you just described is, is kind of the, one of the, the reasons why is that Buckley, 
um, what he does is he really wants to provide in this, this period in the 50s and the 60s, um, a respectable position of resistance on civil rights. I mean, he makes very clear from the beginning, he's against the Brown v. Board school desegregation decision. He's against any federal intervention um, on, you know, to, to deal with segregation. He uh, is a critic of, in most ways of Martin Luther King. He's a critic of the sit-in critic of the Freedom Riders. He's against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He's against the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yeah, right, right. So he's, he's really in this position of resistance. So his position, right, is, is as reactionary or, or intransigent as people further to his right, right, in terms of the kind of um, demagogic, you know, uh, segregationist politicians and that sort of thing. Um, but what he wants to do is offer a responsible, what he thinks is a responsible and respectable mm -hmm. rationale for that position. And so, you know, as you point out, he has all these different ways he defends that position. And, and as we talked about earlier, you know, what I try to do in the book is, is really give him a chance to speak for himself. Okay, what is it? Why is it that you're coming to these conclusions? Or how are you justifying these conclusions? And the reader can judge whether or not these justifications or rationalizations are actually sincere. Um, but that's really, I think it's really important because again, you know, just to, to pick up on another theme of your question, um, this is nothing new, right? If we, if people read, you know, I have like 20 pages or so, you know, in a row where I'm really trying to develop a, a, a sort of solid understanding of how Buckley and his crew mm -hmm. are, are justifying their resistance to, um, you know, to, to the civil rights movement. Um, if, if the rationales that they use, if we were to flip on cable news right now, certain channels, yeah. We would be finding the exact same rationales yet again, um, and so I think that's really that's one of the things that like thinking in slow motion with Buckley and his circle can can help us not just to understand history but also to understand our present political situation. And so, and again, ball, you know, I think it's we can all do that as readers just by reading it, but then to have this extra powerful Baldwinian lens through which to view that is is even it takes it to this other level because what Baldwin is always interested in is he's, he's, he's political in a very particular way, is that he's, he wants to know, Baldwin is always interested in what lies beneath, right? So he, mm -hmm. he's not, you know, he, he sees your political position as you state it, but Baldwin is always asking what kind of grave question of self, what question of identity yeah. lurks beneath whatever we're saying politically. And so he's there to say like, I wanna, I wanna, get, I wanna get at that, right? He thinks that's the core of the story. And um, that's the soul of our problem. And it's also, he thinks that the kind of soul of our possible, um, you know, kind of solution or at least a, a way forward um, is coming to terms with what lies beneath all of our, you know, political positions. Yeah, I want to come back to the identity and power in just a minute. Um, I knew about George Wallace, but, you know, one of the things that you do really well, you know, talk about how Buckley, again, with the, the buttoned up and, you know, not, I'm not KKK, but made it acceptable, made it more mainstream again, so many parallels to today. And where George Wallace, you, you wrote about how he was fairly liberal, you know, for those times, race with race, but then got, you know, went totally off the deep end. He got 96% of the vote. Right. I, yeah. 96%. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, it's important, you know, for listening. Running as a segregation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, so essentially in those days, right, and maybe in these days, in the opposite way, it's, it was a it was a one party state. I mean, so that you uh, it wasn't really um, so. I mean, there was I guess you know there was probably a a um, opposition party, but it was uh, but it was pretty meaningless. Yeah, but I mean, Wallace was somebody who you know the the his biographers indicate that he you know there was a time earlier in his career you know where he did have um, not you know not what we would consider to be liberal views on race, but he wasn't as bad as some of the other people out there. But he essentially loses an election. And that, you know, part of the, the aftermath of that, is, as I understand it, is that, you know, he essentially decides, you know, I need to um, pivot strongly in the direction of, right. of uh, segregation and racism um, in order to, to have success in Alabama. And he was, uh, he, he was right in terms of the, the success that would lead to. And, and of course, mm -hmm. um, yeah, one of the things Buckley tries to do is to, is to position himself as, as a more reasonable you know, way of thinking about these things in somebody like George Wallace. So Buckley's good at criticizing Wallace in, in, in all sorts of ways. But at the end of the day, um, they end up very close to each other on the, the questions at issue. Mm. And they really, you know, the, the, you know, and Buckley also, um, you know, has moments of, of great, uh, you know, like 
not quite admiration for Wallace, but a recognition that Wallace is onto something that the Republican Party needs to uh, ne needs to pick up on. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, part of it is you know, the Bu Buckley basically writes a piece in '64 called "The White Backlash," where he says Wallace is picking up on the fact that there are a lot of people who might have been you know somewhat sympathetic to civil rights at some point but there's going to be a backlash against it mm. and and republicans need to figure out how to how to channel that energy if you know so if buckley is about presenting a a more you know uh what's the word i don't know just a, a cleansed version of of racism you know baldwin is really boiling it down to identity and fear and the fear that he talks about comes from you know holding a mirror up to white America and, you know, to, to racism and just talking about how it's, it's based on fear and fear and fear. And of course, how, you know, the country, he, he argues in the speech with, you know, this, the speech itself, like the debate, America is built on, on plunder and racism and, and rape. And, you know, for, for people to, to buy that myth is to, is to degrade themselves, you know, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Right. We're going to leave most of the, the speech alone um, just because you're the debate, I should say, just because you're the way you present it is so interesting. Don't want to kind of give it away, you know, mm -hmm. even though it is history, but you write about how when it does happen. Now, this is also after, you know, Baldwin had gone, had gone, had experienced so much loss and death, just like America with, you know, Medgar Evers, a horrible assassination, you know, Malcolm X, he had kind of an uneven, to use your word, relationship, but obviously was stunned and upset. And as well as um, a really interesting part about his interactions with uh, the nation of Islam. So mm -hmm. it really brought him to the, to the speech and, you know, did he get a standing ovation? He did not. Buckley claimed he did later years, right. To start off. Mm -hmm. Right. But he, he literally won the debate. I'll give away a little ending right there. I mean, they were voting. He won like three to one mm -hmm. and you just do a great job in, in the, the second to last chat, last chapters, penultimate chapters about, Baldwin at the, at the, um, at the podium, you know, didn't move around a lot. He always was known for, you know, making his eyes big to make his point. He really talked about upsetting myths of American Americana. Um, and Buckley was deflated from the outset, but he still said, I'm going to go down swinging. You know, he got, he, he walked around the stage and everything like that. And, you know, just talks about civilization, our civilization. And he's just one of those guys that wants, I mean, again, he'd be law, he'd say law and order. Mm -hmm. he, he right he really put order above humans let's mm -hmm. keep this order you know yes people are being degraded and abused and such uh, again i'm i'm not saying it as artfully and writing it as artfully as you did the book ends with the epilogue where i don't know if it was years later or, or fairly soon after the debate and baldwin breaks buckley down into three words he says he's a racist liar coward you know just this idea of the lack of humanity right mm -hmm. What a what a journey going through the book, um, you know, great history lesson for for me and so many others like you do a great job leading up to 1965. The debate itself, the way that again that you bring us into it right away and mm -hmm. then bring us into it later, describing the way that the crowd reacts, and everything like that. It's got um, it's got everything for you know any type of reader. So, again, huge congratulations. Well, thank you. It's so awesome to, to talk to you in your lab, you know, with all the stuff <laughs> on the background there, rocking that Rip City sweatshirt. Yeah. And, uh, just talking to the author himself about all your great ideas. So thanks well, that, for uh, such an incredible book and thanks for talking to me. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Well, yeah, you you yeah, you broke it down really well. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, one of these one of these stories that um, I never tire of, of thinking about and talking about. And, and it's one of those things where um, you know, it is sadly, you know, so relevant, right? Yes. The, the story of Baldwin B. Buckley is, is the story of America. And so, um, and so it's, it's the th kind of thing, I mean, one of the things I, I will say by way of conclusion is that, you know, Baldwin was obsessed with history. You know, he, he thought that history was, um, was one of the most important things. And one of the things he always talked about was how our personal histories are, are sort of intertwined with our, um, with our collective history. So like, if we're going to, uh, if we're going to really come to terms with history, we have to reflect on our, our lives as individuals and kind of ask this question of identity, who do we think we are? Um, and think about its relationship to our sort of membership in larger holes, you know? And so who do we think we are individually? Who do we think we are as members of our family? Who do we think we are as 
as uh, as sort of members of of a, of a nation. And Baldwin, you know, the reason he thought history was so important, though, is not just as an intellectual exercise, but because history is present in all that all that we do. And so Heck Baldwin yeah. would constantly say, like, come to terms with your history, um, not so that you're trapped in the past, but so that you can take responsibility in the present. And so that I think is the the sort of the lesson of James Baldwin in so many ways. And um, and yeah, anything I can do to promote, you know, people reading Baldwin, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to do it. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to spend this time with you. And I hope folks uh, read Baldwin. And if they want to read uh, The Fires Upon Us, uh, too, that's good. But <laughs> start with Baldwin. I'm always I'm always promoting Baldwin first. Promote yourself a little bit. Where can we find you <laughs> online? Where, uh, you know, do you have any particular like favorite bookstores or somewhere we should we should buy the book? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, always encouraging people to buy things. Um at independent bookstores, uh, if possible. So you can get, you know, go to bookshop, uh, you know.org, I think is one good way to find independent bookstores to, to get the book. Uh, Powell's.com is, you know, out here in Portland is our, uh, one of our big uh, independent bookstores, which is great and, and many others. So um, yeah, if they want, if folks want to check me out, um, I'm uh, at www.nicholasbucola.com. I'm on Twitter occasionally um, at Bucola underscore Nick. Um, and yeah, and if folks want to check, I mean, I'm out there on YouTube and that sort of thing talking about Baldwin and also uh, did a, a thing uh, in these last few months on on James Baldwin and love, um, mm. which is for a series called Five Things I've Learned. So if folks want to go deep uh, philosophically and think about love with James Baldwin, um, they can check that out. It's, it's uh, I think it's five things five things I've learned dot, dot com or dot org that you can, they can find that there. Cool. The the book got a write up uh, by Gabrielle Bellot or Bellot in the Atlantic. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg shouted it out. Um, the great, uh, shoot. Uh, I just forgot his name. E. Kendi. Kenda. Uh, Ibram, Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah. Ibram X. Kendi, right. Kendi as well. And so, you know, I'm not the only one to say just a great book. Congratulations again. And thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Pete. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to episode 133 of the Chills of Wool podcast. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa. Find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and my podcast while you're checking out this episode and tell a friend or three or seven. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 134 with Kirsten Chen, professor of creative writing at the University of San Francisco and in Ashland University's low residency MFA program. She is the New York Times bestselling author of three novels and her latest, Counterfeit, out now, is the June 22 Reese's, that's Reese Witherspoon, Reese's book club pick. This episode will air on July 18th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Nick Bucola, whose work, like The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and The Debate Over Race in America, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.